Well, if you are with us today for the first time, I'd like to just greet you personally. My name is Jade Duncan, and I have the great honor and the great privilege of leading this house that we call Antioch Church. In your bulletin, we have here on the inside of your bulletin something we call the Antioch Creed. And uh, you, really, you really can't understand who a people are just by a written statement. It gives you a, a baseline understanding of some of the things that are important to us and some of the things that we feel like God has called us to do and to become. But one of the best ways to understand who a people are is to walk the road with them for a period of time. And as you are praying through where God is calling you to become planted and grafted into a people, we're praying with you. We believe the scriptures say that God places each part of the body exactly where he wants them to be. And so it's not so much a matter of when we come to a place, whether or not we like everything or, or they hit all the different check marks on the criteria that we have, but where is God calling you to be? And who is God calling you to, uh, to be a part of? And so we're praying with you uh, in that endeavor because we don't want to uh, recruit you. We want to see you placed exactly where the Father has designed you to be placed in this city. But here in your bulletin, there is what we call our Antioch Creed, and we're just gonna state this together. It's just a good thing to keep in front of our eyes by way of confession, by way of declaration, and by way of faith. So Antioch, let's just declare this together. It says, we are a family of maturing sons and daughters, alive and victorious in the spirit, culturally involved, globally connected, and generationally invested. We are passionately devoted to Jesus, incarnating his truth and advancing his kingdom. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in the name of Jesus. Father, your word says very explicitly that when two or more come together in your name, that you are there. And so we have the great certainty this morning that you are here. You are here not because of anything that we have done. You are here not because of how good we are. You are here by way of grace and the mercy that you demonstrated through your son, our lamb, Jesus. We thank you this morning, God, that, that you were here before we arrived. You were waiting for us. You have set a table for us, a table where all are welcome. Father, we thank you that you are moving in our midst this morning by way of your spirit. Your spirit is here today. Father, thank you that as we worship you, we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. Thank you that we are learning to hear the voice of your spirit. Thank you that we are maturing as sons and daughters. Thank you that we have ears to hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying today. Thank you that you grant us a mind to understand and perceive the truth and the revelation of your word that guides and leads and shapes and forms our lives. And Father, today we pray that as we look to the Lamb Jesus, that we would learn to worship the Lamb and follow the Lamb with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week we began a series on the book of Revelation. And I encourage you, if you're part of the family and you missed out on that message, jump on Antioch.is and you'll be able to catch up with us. Because today we're just in the second message, so you don't, you don't want to get too far behind there. And if you're here with us today for the very first time and you'd like to catch up on some of the introductory uh, message on the book of Revelation that we started last week, you can find that at Antioch.is. I want to give just a very, very quick review on some of the main points that we mentioned last week. So this is going to be very fast and it's just going to be by way of review. The purpose of this series, we're going to be spending eight weeks in the book of Revelation, which is grossly inadequate to fully cover everything that this book has to offer us. But we're just going to just give a brief overview in the next eight weeks, and, uh, and prayerfully this will guide us through some of the cultural and societal turbulence that our, our nation is walking through right now. But more importantly, it will guide us into places of enduring faith and stability in Christ. So the purpose of this series, number one, is to see the church, for us to see that we are the people of God and to understand that we are commissioned to be a faithful witness to Christ. Number two, this, per, this series is designed to equip us to read Revelation confidently, 
to read it confidently. I believe that there are tools that are in the way of the study of how to read the scriptures that will empower us and they will equip us to come to books like the book of Revelation and read them confidently. And uh, to take some of the the, uh, the fear and the confusion out of the book of Revelation. One of the ways that we do this is by taking a historical view of the book of Revelation. Now, all of the book is not historical, but most of the book is historical. And if we look at it from a historical lens, it will help guide us in our understanding. Number three, and this perhaps is one of the most important points of this series and the objectives of this series, is to strengthen your faith in Jesus to know without a shadow of a doubt as we walk through this incredible book of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is worth following with all of our lives. No matter what happens around us, no matter the difficulty or the hardship or the oppression that may or may not come, no matter in times of uh, prosperity or economic strength or in times of hardship or oppression, the main message of this book is Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worth following with all of our hearts. And there's a couple of points here. I just wanna read them out. To see Jesus as the faithful witness and to grow in our confidence, to grow in our assurance and to grow in our trust of the faithfulness of God. Guys, God's faithful. He is faithful till the end. Whatever that end may be and whenever that end may be, and we're not gonna concern ourselves so much with those things, I believe that if we'll really just set our hearts and our minds and our faith on this one characteristic about who God is. He's faithful. And if we trust that he's faithful, it really will do something to settle our nerves with all of the unknowns that are happening around us in our future. In the book of Revelation, we will discover the heart of Jesus and we will grow in love and intimacy with him. You cannot read Revelation accurately and not worship God. You really can't. In fact, we're gonna get to this here in a minute, but one of the main messages and one of the main themes and one of the main motifs in the environment, the setting of the entire book is the throne room of God. And as we see who Jesus is, and we're not talking about just historical now, now we're talking about looking to who Jesus is today, to who he's always been and to who he will always be, to what the entire scriptures give witness to who Jesus is. When we're captured and fascinated, when we're captivated by who Jesus is, then we will say, you are worth it. You are worth it. And our love will burn hot for Jesus and not grow cold. The purpose of this book, number one, is to reveal Jesus. Number two, it is to encourage the church to remain a faithful witness and to endure till the end. And number three, it is to prepare the church, particularly the seven churches of Asia Minor that we find in Revelation two and three, to prepare them for very real, literal hardship and persecution and suffering that they were facing in the context of the empire of Rome. Now, today, focusing on today, what's the purpose of today? It is to bear witness to the nature of God's character and rule in Jesus and to follow the lamb wherever he goes. To follow the lamb wherever he goes. If you have your Bibles with me, if you would, turn to the book of Revelation, verse five. And uh, I'm, I'm hearing the voice of the, the dean of our seminary at ORU one of the first classes that I took on the graduate level is so funny. He went to the board and he wrote up two words on the board. The first word was the word pastoral. This is Dean Matthew. We're talking about a guy who's got multiple graduate degrees and, and a PhD, and he wrote the word pastoral, P-A-S-T-O-R-A-L. And this, this is what he said. He goes, you guys are now seminary students. You are now graduate students. It is called pastoral ministry, not pastoral ministry. There is no I in pastoral. I was like, this is really weird. I'm like a graduate student. And, he's, and then he wrote the word revelation with no S. And he said, it's the book of revelation, not revelations. There is no S 
in the book of Revelation. Just, just a little comedy, guys. Relax a little bit this morning. All right, Revelation chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The first thing that we have to understand, and this will tie into interpreting a book correctly, every book throughout the scripture has a message that it was designed to communicate. It has a purpose for which it was written. And one of the ways that we decipher and discern what that purpose was is by paying attention to key themes and by paying attention to key words. Two of the key words that we find throughout the book of Revelation, number one is the word throne, and the other is the word lamb. The word throne appears 43 times from chapter four till the end of the book. Throne, what does that tell us? If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that Revelation should be read more in terms of a theater production, cycles, where every chapter or every opening scene in the book of Revelation begins in the throne room of God. And you can see this. Every new scene that develops, it begins in the throne room of God, and then difficult things transpire, and then that scene ends back in the throne room of God. It's important because one of the main messages of the book of Revelation, again, is you are a faithful witness, endure till the end, Jesus is worth it, there is a reward that transcends what happens here on this earth, and there is a very real God with, a, with, with, with absolute rule and authority over all of the earth, and that place is real. And that's why we see the throne, the power, the sovereignty, the rule, the authority of God mentioned so much in the book of Revelation. The second word is lamb. Throne, power, sovereignty, authority, and lamb. Lamb representing sacrifice, vulnerability, obedience, and faithfulness. Many interpreters claim that one or both of these images provide the theological keys to the book because together these two images constitute the interpretive key to the entire book. They reveal in pictures the essential theology of the book of Revelation. So we have these two pictures and they're not, this is so amazing when you really begin to look at this, they are not in contradiction to each other. God's throne, which represents his power, his sovereignty, and his authority, and, God, and the Lamb of God, which represents vulnerability, weakness, sacrifice, and surrender, they're not in contradiction to each other. They work together. They work together. Notice that when John sees the Lamb, he is seen in the center of the throne. And we're gonna to continue to unpack this to help us to understand that one of the ways that God exercises his sovereignty, his power, and his authority is by the spirit and the nature and the attitude of sacrifice and surrender and faithfulness and obedience like that of the Lamb Jesus. God the creator represented by the throne reigns and he is worthy of our devotion Jesus, the faithful slaughtered lamb, reigns with God and he is equally worthy of our devotion. I wanna just read together a number of verses that reference the lamb before we go any further. 
There's a number of things that I want to reference in terms of who is this lamb. Let's, let's understand the nature, the heart, the character of the lamb of God in the book of Revelation particularly. But I want to just do a, just a broad stroke of some verses. And this is something that I don't typically do because there are a lot of them. But I think this would be fun and it would be helpful. So Alyssa, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to work on this. Let's look at Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So here we see the lamb has been revealed. And now in chapter four, what we find is we find the throne room and we find God, the creator of the heavens and the earth being worshiped by creatures that represent all of the creatures of the created order. Then the setting changes in Revelation 5 and it focuses on the lamb. Not because they are in competition with each other, but because they, it is God the Father, the creator of the created order, and it's God the Son, the redeemer of the created order. Revelation 5.12, in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's important for us to understand that the same creatures that were worshiping the divinity of God the Father are now worshiping the divinity of the lamb, Jesus. Revelation 6, 1 I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. Let's look at Revelation 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before, say it with me, the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7:10. and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. Revelation 7, 14, I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are, these, who, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the lamb. Revelation 7, 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over him, meaning the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Look at Revelation 13, 11. This one's very, very fascinating. It's actually a motif or a theme in the book of Revelation that we're going to maybe dust on a little bit today, but expound on more in the weeks to come. Revelation 13, 11. This is speaking of the beast, Satan. Actually, the dragon is Satan. This is speaking of the beast who is those that belong to the empire and those that follow the dragon. It says, I saw a second beast coming out of the earth and it had two horns like a lamb. Now let's just pause here for a second. Why is that? Isn't that fascinating? Here we see all these scriptures about the lamb, all these scriptures about the faithful witness of Jesus, all these scriptures about the character and the nature of the faithful son. And then all of a sudden we have this beast who is designed to deceive the people of God and he comes he has these horns like a lamb. And all throughout Revelation, you'll see when the dragon and the beast and the false prophet come on the scene, they represent a false trinity. We have the real trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The enemy can only create counterfeits. The enemy can only look to the appearance of what he sees God doing, but he cannot manufacture the real 
He cannot manufacture the real spirit. He cannot manufacture the real heart, the real nature of who the lamb is. All he can do is come in the form or the appearance or things, characteristics that look lamb-like, but he himself is not the lamb. Revelation 14.1, 14.1. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 14.4, these are those who did not defile themselves with women for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. Just a couple of more, I'm skipping a lot of these verses. 31 verses total in the book of Revelation. Let's speak about the lamb. Look at Revelation 15, three. And sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God almighty. Just and true are your ways, king of the nations. Let's do one more. Revelation 17, 14. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and he is the king of kings, and with him will be his called, his chosen, and his faithful followers. Why did we do that? Why did we look at all these verses? And, and again, I just read just, just a handful of verses from the book of Revelation. It's interesting to me that what John the seer, and you'll see this as a pattern, if you read the book of Revelation from start to finish, and, and I just encourage you, as we're walking through this series, if you've never touched the book of Revelation, or you might be somewhere else in your Bible reading, I want to encourage you as a church, we as a church together, let's read the book of Revelation together. And, uh, and let's make these discoveries and allow the Holy Spirit to guide and lead and speak to us together from the word of God in the book of Revelation. But you'll see this pattern over and over again throughout the book when you read it holistically, that John is continually hearing something but then when he sees, when he turns and he sees, what he sees is actually described and defined as a little bit different than that which he heard. So what he hears is, look, a lion. And the book of Revelation speaks so much of images because images evoke a meaning. They evoke association. So here he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he turns, what he sees is he sees a lamb and we never hear the lion mentioned throughout the entire book again. All we see is the lamb, which tells us that God is speaking something to us about the nature of how the kingdom of God functions in its tenor, in its attitude, in its authority. It looks like something, the rule and the nature of lamb-like leadership, it looks like something. It looks a lot different than the things that we're seeing in our political process today. Amen. It looks a lot different than the empire and the conquest of Rome some of the study that I've looked into, and Jonathan's gonna break this down in more detail in a few weeks when we talk about resisting empire. But again, going back to the, to the historical setting here of the seven churches in Asia Minor, Rome was um, dominating and just destroying all of the city-states that were in their path. And here's the interesting thing about Rome. They worshiped the goddess of Victoria, which is the god of victory. They worshiped victory. They worshiped conquest. They worshiped being able to coerce other people and to destroy other people and to overthrow other people. And all throughout the different places that Rome would go into, they would set up altars and memorials and statues and, and there would be figures all throughout the places that they conquered that would say, look at how powerful Rome is. And they would worship their own victory. They would worship their own might. They would worship their own power. They would worship how great they were. Do I need to create any more dots to connect here? Let's make Rome great again, shall we, so we can worship it. This was the spirit and the ethos of empire. And so it's not coincidental that the lamb who is the lion 
We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna explain this. The Lamb Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the faithful root of Jesse, the image that God wants us to understand about the nature of this messianic king, just like in the days of Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, ready to lay his life down, and everyone is worshiping their image of the Messiah. He comes in low as a servant, as a suffering servant. This is the image that God wants us to see throughout the entire book of Revelation, that God is a God who rules and conquers by laying his life down. Who is this lamb? Number one, the lamb is the Passover lamb that was slaughtered for our deliverance. Those of you that were familiar at all with much of the Old Testament writings, and I have some references here in Exodus chapter 12, the Lamb Jesus that we see in the book of Revelation is the Lamb that was the Passover Lamb for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. The type and the shadow of the very real, physical, literal Lamb that was slain in the blood that was placed on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over and the people of Israel would be delivered from the oppression of Egypt. That is our Lamb Jesus. He is the lamb that delivers us from the yoke and the bondage of sin and Satan and death, and he brings us into a kingdom of priests. Here's something that's fascinating when we think about the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, when they were delivered from the oppression of Egypt, here's what God says in Exodus chapter 19. He says, bring these people out to me so that they may be my people and I may make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isn't that interesting? So that I make, make them into my people and I may make them into a kingdom of priests. Look at Revelation chapter five, verse 10. Revelation 5.10 says, you have made them, meaning us, the people of God, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Is that coincidence? The Lamb Jesus who delivered the people of Israel that God called out from underneath the bondage of Egypt into the desert so that they could be his people and he could make them into a kingdom of priests. This is for the people of Israel. Now in the book of Revelation, we see the Lamb is still trumpeting the same message. I have laid my life down, not just so that the people of Israel would be a kingdom of priests, but that all nations and all peoples from all stratus of society and all chains of economic prowess could be a kingdom of priests. It is consistent. Christ, our Passover lamb, he exhibits his strength by laying down his life and then he invites us into his royalty. Rome invites us to serve the goodness and the greatness of Rome by being captors and by giving up our will and by being forced and by being conquered. Jesus says, I will suffer being conquered for you and I will invite you into the royalty of being a kingdom people. Number two, the lamb is the suffering servant who redeems us from our sin. Who is this lamb? He is the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12, but he is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. As I was looking at Isaiah 53, and just for the sake of time and space, and as most communicators do, try to cut out the things that are extraneous, I can't find one verse in Isaiah 53 to cut out. So I'm gonna ask that we read this entire chapter together and as we do, we read this through the lens of Revelation and we, we read this through the lens of this is our victorious lamb who was slain, not just so that we would have a personal relationship with God, but he was slain to redeem us from the thing that keeps us from functioning as a kingdom of priests in the world throughout all of eternity. Isaiah 53 verse one says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, our Passover lamb, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. He could have have wiped out every one of those soldiers if he wanted to. That is the spirit of the beast. That is the spirit of empire. And yet our lamb did not even open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led as a sheep before its shearers is silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life as an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. This is the one who's worthy to break the seal and to open the scrolls. This is the one who is worthy of our worship, the lamb, Jesus. Which brings us to point number three, who is this lamb? This is the lamb who is worthy. The question here that John is wrestling with when he sees these scrolls and these scrolls are, they're marked by seals and many of you have seen the, the old medieval, medieval seals that you know the wax was put on there and the signet of a ruler or a person of authority was set into that hot wax. Seals and scrolls have to deal with authority. Think about this, a seal was an official document or decree that implied by nature of the fact that it was sealed with a seal, that its contents are valid. They are legitimate. They're authorized. The seal also represents the fact that it ensures that the scroll is truly the will of the author and it has not been tampered with. The seal represents authority because only someone who has proper authority can open the scroll and break the seal. This is not just coincidence here. There are things by the mystery and by the wisdom and by the nature of who God is that he designed and desired to be kept hidden. And here in the book of Revelation, we look throughout all of the earth to find someone who is worthy and the only one we find worthy or authorized, we could, we, could, we could retranslate that. We could reinterpret that. We could say, who is, who is the one who is authorized to break the seal? Who is the one who is authorized? Who is the one who has been legitimately authorized with the authority and the permission and the power to break that seal and to access the content of the scrolls that are inside it? And it's the lamb who is worthy. Why is the lamb worthy? 
worthy. The lamb teaches us what submission, authority, and rule look like. He is the faithful son. True authority, and we have to understand this, this, as we talk about the personal application of what it means to follow the lamb, this is not just an ethereal concept, church. What it means to follow the lamb is that we live our lives by the power and the grace and the mercy of God's spirit, but we live our lives in the same manner that the lamb, Jesus, modeled for us. He invites us into that kind of life. We lay our lives down. Authority is not something that people take. Sons never seize authority. Authority that is seized or authority that is stolen, listen, listen, it is unjust authority. It's unjust. It's illegitimate. It's actually what Satan did in the garden. Satan was not authorized by way and permission of the Father to function in the authority within the created order. So he went illegally to Adam and to Eve. Actually, he went illegally to Eve. He didn't even function within the the authority of that family structure. He didn't go to the head of that family. He went to Eve and he stole by way of manipulation and deceit because sons receive authority. They don't take it. They don't deceive it. They don't manipulate it. They don't hide. What they do is blessed, and we see this here in Jesus. He was worthy to open the scrolls. He was authorized to open the scrolls because he showed himself faithful to the obedience of the Father. Philippians chapter 2 is perhaps one of the best scriptures that help us to understand why Jesus, the man, the lamb, was worthy. Beginning in verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Other translations say something to be grasped. Look at that one more time. Just put this back up here. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be seized, something to be stolen, something to be used for his own gain. That's the spirit of empire. That's the spirit of the beast, to manipulate and to deceive and to steal authority and then to abuse authority for conquest and power and coercion. But the son did not consider, though being in very nature God, did not consider authority something that he had to snatch from God. He walked through a process of submission and humility and faithfulness and obedience. Always pay attention to someone's process. Always pay attention to whether or not people are receiving permission to do what they're doing. Very, very important as it relates to following the Lamb. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's the kicker, verse nine. Therefore, 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 because of faithful obedience, because he chose to lay down his life even unto death, because he endured till the end, because he submitted to the authorizing orders of the Father, now he is exalted to the highest place, That's why our lamb is worthy. It's because of that verse right there. Number four, who is this lamb? The lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb is the lion. Let's take a look at some verses here. I have a quote here. I don't think it's in your notes. It's written by a very well-known scholar named Richard Hayes, and it says, the shock of this reversal, what, what, what reversal is he talking about? The reversal of hearing a lion and seeing a lamb. It's, it's like my entire paradigm, John is thinking. My entire paradigm just got turned upside its head. What's happening here? The shock of this reversal dec- discloses the central mystery of the apocalypse. 
We gotta pay attention here because this is the whole point of the book. God overcomes the world not through a show of force like empire, like the beast, like the dragon, but God overcomes the world through the suffering and the death of Jesus. This is the way God leads. This is the way that we're to lead. It is the central and centering image. It is the governing metaphor. It is the focal point of all of Revelation, a slaughtered lamb, a crucified Lord. Let's talk here a little bit about the lion in just a couple of minutes that we have. The lion brings forth images of messianic expectations. You can look this up on your own, but in Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing each of his sons of the 12 tribes that became the 12 tribes of Israel, he lays his hands on Judah and he speaks a prophetic word over him in Genesis 49, 9 and 10. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the people is his. This was a prophetic word speaking of Jesus the Messiah coming from the line of Judah. When we think about David, again, the messianic expectation in the same way that David led as a king, conquering the enemies of Israel, establishing the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God, through Israel. This is the picture that the people of Israel had. They had this picture when Jesus came the first time. This is actually still the picture that is here in the book of Revelation. It's the picture that most of us have today. A couple of statements here that might make us squeam a little bit. <laughs> Human beings even apparently faithful Christians too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universe with power, preferably on their terms and with force when necessary. Such a concept of God and of God's sovereignty induces its adherence to side with this God in the execution of divine might in the quest for divine justice. What does this mean? It means we like an all-powerful, almighty, all-sovereign God when that almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God does what we want that almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God to do. We love that. We love that image. We love that picture. We do not like the picture of the cross. We do not like the picture of a slaughtered lamb. We do not like the picture of faithful to the end. We do not like the picture of dying to ourselves, dying to our bitterness, dying to our resentment, dying to our unforgiveness, dying to our pride, dying to our power, dying to our position. We want a God who will destroy our enemies and we get to ride with him and conquer and slay our enemies with him. That's not the message of Revelation. The message of Revelation is you will reign with me as you follow me in obedience to death. That's the message. The message is you will, be, you will be with me if you are faithful till the end. That's the message of Revelation. The message of Revelation is there is a reward for following the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion who is a lamb is shown to redefine our expectations of who God is and how he works. Next point, and you can take a look here on your notes. We just mapped out a couple of comparisons here between the lion and the lamb. Wrapping up, who is this lamb? The lamb is Jesus, the son of man who rules by serving if you recall in John chapter one, verse 29, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, John the Baptist has a number of people that are following him. He has disciples. He has a position. He has an anointing. And then the lamb shows up. And here's what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist is faced with a decision. Do I continue to build my own empire? 
Do I continue to milk my own ministry? Do I continue to propagate my own anointing? Do I continue to do things in the name of God that actually serve me? Or do I choose to point to the lamb? And here's what John decides to do. He says, look, the lamb of God, it takes away the sins of the world. And at that very moment with that very proclamation, he lost, his, he lost all of his ministry supporters. Because who wants to still hang out with the old covenant guy, John the Baptist, when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come on the scene? And right at that very moment, these guys, they leave John the Baptist and they begin to follow Jesus. But that is what we are called to do. We're not called to point people to Antioch. We're not called to point people to our ministries. We're not called to point people to our grace or our strengths or our anointings or our gifts. We're called to say, look, there's the Lamb of God. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. He's worth it. He's worthy. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 20, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Our men's chaplain, when I was a chaplain at ORU, made us memorize Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. In our weekly reports, he made us write this verse at the top of every page. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every week, we would have to write that on the top of that page. He drilled into us the purpose for spiritual authority, the purpose for position, the purpose for anything that you've been given is to serve like the lamb served. Jesus is actually intercepting and intervening in an empire conversation. His disciples don't realize it, but they're having a conversation about who gets to sit in the seat of position and privilege and authority so they can rule. And then Jesus says, hey, listen, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over one another. He's talking beast and empire language, guys. But then he says, the son of man did not come to rule and conquer. He did not come on a conquest to prove everyone wrong. He did not come to elevate himself and to show his strong arm and his mighty power. He came to wash feet. He came to love lepers. He came to erase the sins of women that were caught in adultery. He came to come near to the brokenhearted. He came to reconcile Samaritans and Jews. He came to destroy racial division. He came to heal and bind up the brokenhearted. He came to lead us in the paths of peace. He did not come in the spirit of Rome. He did not come like the beast. He did not come in the spirit of empire. He came as an example of what it means to be children of God. This is the kind of leadership this is the heart, this is the spirit in which God himself rules the world. It's not changed. It's not changed. I don't care where you fall politically, but we ought to be absolutely disgusted with the contrast between both candidates and our lamb. Follow the lamb. This message has messed with me because when I want to defend myself, I hear the Holy Spirit say, son, follow the lamb. When I want to react in anger, follow the lamb. When I want to manipulate and abuse my authority to rule and to conquer, follow the lamb. Follow him. Follow his example. Follow his heart. Follow his leadership. Follow his model. Follow him wherever he goes. The Lamb of God, Jesus. He didn't harbor offense. He didn't harbor bitterness. He didn't harbor resentment. He laid his life down. 
He didn't defend himself. He laid his life down. It's the central message of Revelation. Jonathan, if you would come into fo- the attendance of our table would come forward this morning. There's two ways that we can respond to this message. And really, if you think about it, church, there's two ways that we can respond to every message. Number one, we can respond and say, I can do that. I can do that. I can follow that lamb wherever he goes. It's a wrong response. Because like the beast who imitates the lamb, the best that we can do is imitate the lamb. You understand what I'm saying here? In our own strength, in our own sinfulness, in our own carnality, in our own humanity, in our own willpower, the best that we can do is just try to imitate the lamb. So if you're sitting here today saying, I can do that. Or if you're sitting here today saying, let's get to some more of the intellectual, you know, academic aspects and elements of the, you know, the nitty gritty things in Revelation that I really wanna hear about. We missed it. Come on up, guys. Here's the other response. The other response is, is simply, there's no way I can do that. The other response is, this is impossible. And you know, without the Spirit of God, without the body and the blood of Jesus, without the invitation of God to come and receive mercy, following the Lamb is impossible. We cannot live lamb-like in our own power. I've tried, I tried. You know, with four kids and, and chaotic mornings getting ready and, 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 and lack of systems and structures in my life that just keep everything in just perfect, pristine order, it lasts probably, I don't know what, maybe, maybe a solid 30 minutes on a good day. Just, you know, everything's nice and calm and composed and peaceful in my own strength and my own ability. I am incapable of following the Lamb. I must have the mercy of God. I must have the fresh empowerment of God's Spirit. And that's why we come to His table to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We come to the table, Lord, to receive life, the life of God's Spirit. We believe that at this table, we come and we receive of the life of God. The life of God that transforms us into new creatures, new creations, new beings. We believe at the table of the Lord, we receive life and mercy so that we, like our King, could walk in his ways, follow in his steps. I'm gonna ask that you would stand this morning.